Hello, wild wanderers. So the last episode, I talked about a couple of the animals we saw on our recent trip to Costa Rica, the Central American agouti and the white-nosed coati. And with the chaos of relocating, that episode was a little thrown together and a little on the short side. So today, I want to tell you about some of the other animals we saw on our trip. Some, like the Ecuadorian hermit crabs, leafcutter ants, and rain frogs, were small. And some, like the mantled howler monkey, were larger and much, much louder. And there were some pretty cool birds and interesting squirrels that fell somewhere in between. So let's head back down to the tropics and learn more about a variety of Costa Rican wildlife. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, one of the exciting things, at least for me, about traveling to different places is getting to see different wildlife, both large and small. Sometimes that wildlife is both familiar, but still different. Take, for example, the variegated squirrel. In terms of shape and size, variegated squirrels look like, well, they're squirrels, about the size of a typical gray squirrel in North America. But color-wise, variegated squirrels are interesting to someone like me who's only seen fox, gray, or red squirrels his whole life. Variegated is defined as exhibiting different colors, especially as irregular patches or streaks, which pretty much describes these guys. The ones we saw were reddish on their body, similar in color to a fox squirrel, but they had a silvery gray stripe down their back and gray streaks in their tail. In other subspecies, this stripe can be black, and some have lighter patches behind the ears. Variegated squirrels are found throughout Central America. Like other squirrels, they're diurnal, they're active during the day. But unlike our North American squirrels, variegated squirrels are rarely found on the ground. At night, they sleep in tree cavities or in leaf nests. Variegated squirrels are primarily seed eaters, but they'll also eat fruits and sometimes insects or even nesting birds. Since they live in the tropics, variegated squirrels don't need to cache food the way squirrels in colder climates do, so they don't really play as much of a role in dispersing seeds as their North American cousins. Now, on our first night in the cloud forest of Monteverde, we were eating dinner outside when a large winged insect visited our table. Now, thanks to iNaturalist, I discovered that our uninvited guest was a species of leafcutter ant. Later, near our lodging, we found another non-winged individual. Now, I talked about ants a couple of episodes ago, but leafcutter ants definitely rate a revisit. These ants are relatively large. They're rusty brown or reddish in color, and they have a spiny body and long legs. Like many other ant species, both queens and males have wings. Next to humans, though, leafcutter ants form some of the largest and most complex animal societies on the planet. Starting with just a single queen, over the course of just a few years, the central mound of a leafcutter ant's underground nest can grow to nearly 100 feet across, with smaller radiating mounds extending out to 260 feet and cover an area of 6,500 square feet in total, and contain 8 million individuals. Queens and males aside, in a mature leafcutter colony, the remaining ants are divided into casts, based mostly on size, and each cast has a specific job. 
Minims are the smallest workers and primarily tend to the growing brood or care for the fungus garden, one of the most fascinating things about leafcutter ants and something I'll talk more about in a minute. Next are the miners, which are slightly larger than minim workers and are present in large numbers in and around the foraging columns. Miners are the first line of defense and continuously patrol the surrounding terrain, vigorously attacking any enemies that threaten the foraging lines. Media are the next largest. They're foragers, and their job is to cut leaves and bring the fragments back to the nest. Interestingly, when foraging, they're at risk of attack by a species of paratosoid fly that lays eggs in the crevices of the ant's head. And it's not unusual for a minim to sit on the head of a foraging media worker or on the cut section of a leaf being carried back to the nest to help ward off an attack. During this ride, they also decontaminate the leaf and feed on the sap. Now finally, there are the largest workers, the majors. Majors act as soldiers, defending the nest from intruders, and recent evidence indicates they also perform other jobs, like clearing the main foraging trails of large debris and carrying bulky items back to the nest. Leafcutter ants can carry 200 times their body weight, which is the equivalent of me taking a hike with a 3,200-pound backpack. Now, full disclosure, I didn't know much about leafcutter ants prior to researching them for this episode. I always assumed that they cut leaves to bring back to the nest for food, but that's not exactly the case. While the minims and media do get some sustenance from the cut leaves, the primary food source of the queens and the ants in the nest is a species of fungus that they cultivate on the chewed up leaves. And different species of leafcutter ants cultivate different species of fungus. The fungi used by leafcutter ants has evolved to no longer produce spores. These ants fully domesticated their fungal partners 15 million years ago, a process that took 30 million years to complete. The ants actively cultivate their fungus, feeding it with freshly cut leaves and keeping it free from pests and mold. Leafcutter ants are sensitive enough to adapt to the fungi's reaction to different plant material. They're able to detect chemical signals from the fungus. If a particular type of leaf is toxic to the fungus, the colony stops collecting it. Now there's another fungus with a name I'm probably going to pronounce wrong. Escovopsis. I think that's right. This is a necrotic fungus that threatens the ant's food source, making it a constant danger to the colony. One way that leafcutter ants protect their fungal gardens from this invader is with secretions from their metapleural gland, a structure I talked about in episode 49. Living in the metapleural gland of leafcutter ants is a type of gram-positive bacteria whose name I'm not even going to attempt, but this bacteria is the same one that's responsible for most of the world's antibiotic medications. Caring for the fungal garden also means taking out the trash, and waste management is a key role for a colony's longevity. Leafcutter ants like the ones we saw have an external waste heap. Waste transporters take the waste, consisting of used substrate and discarded fungus, to this waste heap. Once dropped off at the waste heap, workers organize the waste and constantly shuffle it around to aid in decomposition. Dead colony members are often placed around the perimeter of the waste heap. Now, like the other ants that I talked about in episode 49, leafcutter winged females and winged males leave their respective nests and engage in a nuptial flight. 
Females mate with multiple males in order to collect the 30 million sperm that they're going to need to establish a new colony. After mating, the female loses her wings and searches for a suitable underground lair in which to found a new colony. Before leaving their parent colonies, though, winged females carry a small section of fungus in their intrabuchal pocket, another structure I talked about in episode 49, to help seed the fungus garden of their new colony. The new queen doesn't eat from the fungus initially. She gives it time to grow by fertilizing it with her feces. In the meantime, she survives on her body fat reserves, energy from her body breaking down her now useless wing muscles, and by eating 90% of the eggs that she lays. Omelets, anyone? The success rate of these young queens is very low, though. Only 2.5% will go on to establish a long-lived colony. Now, after spending a couple of days enjoying the cloud forest, including a wonderful guided night hike where we saw a variety of frogs, millipedes, venomous caterpillars, and a large tarantula, we traveled to the coast and spent a couple days at a place called Playa Carrillo, a beautiful spot just north of the Camaronal National Wildlife Refuge. One of the first things we saw hanging around the resort were black spiny-tailed iguanas. Black spiny-tailed iguanas are native to Mexico and Central America, and they get their name from their distinctive black keeled scales on their very long tails. They have a crest of long spines that extends down the center of the back. Coloration varies, but adults are usually a whitish gray or tan, with a series of between 4 and 12 well-defined dark dorsal bands. Males develop an orange color around the head and throat during breeding season, with highlights of blue and even peach on their jowls. Black spiny-tailed iguanas can get pretty big. Males can reach just over four feet long, and females just over three. Now, spiny-tailed iguanas are excellent climbers. They prefer rocky habitats with plenty of crevices to hide in, rocks to bask on, and nearby trees to climb. The ones we saw at our resort would bask on the sidewalk near small drainage culverts that they would run into when anyone got too close. And they're quick. In fact, the Guinness Book of World Records lists the black spiny-tailed iguana as the world's fastest lizard with a maximum sprint speed of 21 and a half miles an hour. They mostly use this speed to escape predators, but they'll lash with their tails and bite if they're cornered. Black spiny-tailed iguanas are primarily herbivorous. They eat flowers, leaves, stems, and fruit. But they will eat smaller animals like rodents, bats, frogs, small birds, eggs, arthropods, and even smaller iguanas if the opportunity presents itself. Juveniles tend to eat more insects and become more herbivorous as they get older. Interestingly, they're known to eat the fruit and live in the limbs of the machineal, a tree that's highly poisonous to most other animals. Mating usually occurs in the spring. Males show dominance and interest by bobbing their head, and eventually the male will chase the female until he catches and subdues her. In eight to 10 weeks, the female digs a nest and lays a clutch of up to 30 eggs. Eggs hatch in about 90 days, and the hatchlings dig their way out of the sand. Juveniles are typically green with brown markings. In some parts of Central America, black spiny-tailed iguanas are colloquially known as chicken of the trees, and they're farmed alongside green iguanas as both a food source and for export for the pet trade. In spite of being heavily hunted, black spiny-tailed iguanas don't appear to be endangered in any of their native territory. 
On a side note, iguana meat has historically been an important part of the culinary traditions of Mexico and Central America. Common recipes for iguana include soups and stews, as well as being roasted for tacos and flautas. In parts of South Florida, where iguanas are invasive, people have started eating iguana meat after the Florida Wildlife Agency encouraged residents to kill green iguanas on their own property. Iguanas are also invasive in Puerto Rico, and there's been efforts to promote iguana consumption there, too. Now, anytime I have the opportunity, I really like to explore tidal pools at low tide. It gives you the chance to see a variety of creatures that you might not otherwise get to see. Exploring Playa Carrillo's tidal pools, we saw tiny brittle sea stars, sea slugs, limpets, and a variety of crabs, including the beautiful painted ghost crab. But my favorite was the Ecuadorian hermit crabs. Now, I've seen hermit crabs in pet stores, but to see them in their natural habitat was way more interesting. Now, in fact, Ecuadorian hermit crabs, also called Pacific hermit crabs, are one of two hermit crab species commonly sold in pet stores. At just under a half an inch long at most, they're one of the smallest species of hermit crab in the world. They have four walking legs, a small pincher, a large pincher, and antenna. Their eyes are comma-shaped. Now, despite their name, hermit crabs tend to live in groups. Ecuadorian hermit crabs can make a chirping sound to communicate with each other. As pets, it was thought they only lived for a few months, but Ecuadorian hermit crabs can live to be over 30 years old. As hermit crabs grow, they require larger shells. Since suitable intact gastropod shells are sometimes a limited resource, there's sometimes competition between hermit crabs for shells. The availability of empty shells at any given place depends on the relative abundance of both gastropods and hermit crabs matched for size. An equally important issue is the population of gastropod predators that leave the shells intact. If shells aren't available for hermit crabs, they'll use alternative things like soda cans or any other type of debris, which unfortunately can be fatal to the hermit crab. Depending on the material, they may be able to climb into, but not out of, something like, say, slippery plastic debris. This can then create a chain reaction of fatality, because a dead hermit crab will release a signal that tells others that a shell is available, luring more hermit crabs to their deaths. Hermit crabs with undersized shells can't grow as fast as those with well-fitting shells, and they're more likely to get eaten if they can't retract completely into their shell. They prefer shells with wide and round aperture openings. Shells used by hermit crabs have usually been remodeled by previous hermit crab owners. Only small hermit crabs can live without remodeled shells. This remodeling involves the crab hollowing out the shell to make it lighter. They achieve this by both chemically and physically carving out the interiors of these shells. These remodeled shells can last for generations. One of the most interesting facts I found about Ecuadorian hermit crabs is that studies have shown that they prefer the odors of foods they have not recently eaten. Hermit crabs exposed to one food for at least nine hours preferred foods with another odor for the next six hours. Now, this short-term avoidance of certain foods, kind of like people who get bored eating the same thing over and over again, compels the crab to seek out a wider range of food, and this could be an advantage to the crab by making it seek out a more nutritionally balanced diet. 
Now, the last animal I want to talk about was one of the most interesting, and we encountered it while sitting by the pool at our resort, the mantled howler monkey. A lone male walked right through the pool area while a group of others gathered in the nearby trees. Like the coati and the agouti, mantled howler monkeys are not uncommon in Costa Rica. In fact, they're one of the most frequently seen and heard monkey species in the wild in Central America. The mantled howler is primarily black except for a fringe of yellow or golden brown hairs on the flanks of the body, which is where the name mantled comes from. I'll get to the howler part later. Adult females are one and a half to two feet long, excluding their tail, and weigh between seven and 17 pounds. Males are slightly larger, with a body a couple inches longer, and weigh between 10 and 22 pounds. Their prehensile tail adds another two feet or so. They use their tail to hold on to branches when sleeping, resting, or feeding. They can support their entire body weight with the tail, but most of the time they hold on with the tail and both feet. When males reach sexual maturity, and I can confirm this to be true, their <clears throat> dangly bits turn white, making them stand out against that dark fur. Mantled howlers live in groups called troops. Troop size averages 10 to 20 members, usually with 1 to 3 adult males and 5 to 10 adult females and their offspring. But some troops have been documented with over 40 members. Mantled howlers have a social hierarchy within the troop. Males outrank females, and younger animals of each gender outrank older animals. Higher-ranking monkeys get preference for food and resting sites, and the alpha male gets primary mating rights. Members of the troop are generally not related to each other because most members of both sexes leave their natal troops before they reach sexual maturity to join other troops. Grooming among mantled howlers is infrequent, but has been shown to reflect this social hierarchy. Dominant individuals tend to groom subordinates. Most grooming activities are short and typically involve females grooming infants or adult males. Troops of mantled howlers don't defend exclusive territories, and several troops can have overlapping home ranges. However, if two troops meet, they will aggressively attempt to evict each other from the immediate area. But overall, the mantled howler is a relatively inactive monkey, and troops only travel about a half a mile a day. One study showed that mantled howlers reuse travel routes to known feeding and resting sites and appear to remember and use specific landmarks to help pick direct routes to their destination. Mantled howlers sleep or rest through the night and about three quarters of the day. Most of the active period is spent eating with only a small percentage of the day spent on any sort of social interaction. Now that I think about it, that also describes my 15 year old. But in mantled howlers, lethargy is an adaptation to a low energy diet. The mantled howler is one of the most folivorous species of Central American monkey, basically meaning that they eat a lot of salad. Leaves make up between 50% and 75% of the mantled howler's diet. The mantled howler is selective about the trees it eats from, and it prefers young leaves to mature ones. Young leaves usually have fewer toxins and more nutrients than mature leaves and are generally easier to digest. Like other species of howler monkeys, mantled howlers have full three-color vision, which is believed to help them distinguish young leaves, which tend to be more reddish, from more mature leaves. Now, while leaves are abundant, especially in the tropics, 
They're a low-energy food source, which helps explain the howler monkey's rest-heavy lifestyle. But even though leaves tend to make up the majority of the mantled howler's diet, fruit can also make up a large portion of their diet when it's in season. When it's available, fruit can comprise as much as half of the mantled howler's diet, and sometimes even exceed the proportion of leaves. During the dry season, flowers are eaten in large quantities too. Mantled howlers get almost all of the water they need from their food, but they might drink water trapped in tree cavities if it's available. Mantled howlers are polygamous. One male, usually the alpha male, mates with multiple females. But if the alpha male is distracted, a lower ranking male might get a chance to mate. On average, alpha males maintain their status for two and a half to three years, during which time they father an average of 18 offspring. Gestation period is just over six months. For the first two to three weeks, the infant clings to the mother's chest, then it's carried on mother's back. After about three months, though, mom starts to get tired of these shenanigans and starts to push the baby off, but she'll still carry it some of the time until it's four or five months old. Babies are weaned by about the age of 18 months, after which they're on their own. But that said, the life of a young howler monkey is fraught with danger. Predators like cats, weasels, snakes, and eagles kill infant howlers. And if that isn't enough, High-ranking adults sometimes harass or kill the offspring of lower-ranking monkeys to eliminate competition for their own offspring. And if a male from an outside troop ousts the previous alpha male, he'll normally kill any infants to make the females come into estrus more quickly so he can mate with them himself. Only about 30% of mantled howler infants live more than a year, but if they can make it that long, the average lifespan is around 25 years. Okay, so back to the howler part of mantled howler monkey. The howler part of their name comes from the calls made by the males, particularly at dusk and dawn, but also in response to disturbances, including predators, other monkeys, and sometimes even thunder or traffic. This is what we experienced. Every time a motorcycle drove by under the troop, which in Costa Rica is pretty frequently, the monkeys would vocalize. On a side note, my guide to Costa Rican mammals advised that one should not observe howlers from directly below because they were likely to express irritation by urinating and flinging feces on the object of their irritation, and that furthermore they were, and I quote, surprisingly accurate. Mantled howler monkey calls consist of grunts and repeated roars that can last for four to five seconds each. These calls are very loud and can be heard from several kilometers away. The volume is produced by the hyoid bone, a hollow bone near the vocal cords, a structure I've talked about in previous episodes, and I still have trouble pronouncing it. The hyoid bone amplifies the sound made by the vocal cords. Male mantled howlers have a hyoid bone that is 25 times larger than similarly sized spider monkeys, which makes the bone act like the body of a drum in amplifying the calls. Females also call, but their calls are higher in pitch and not nearly as loud as the males. The ability to produce these loud roars is another energy-saving device, consistent with the mantled howler's low-energy diet. 
The roars let the monkeys locate each other without moving around or risking physical confrontation with other troops. In addition to these loud roars, mantled howlers use a variety of other sounds, including barks, grunts, wolfs, cackles, and screeches. They use a clucking sound to maintain contact with other members of the troop. The mantled howler also uses non-vocal communication, like urine rubbing when in a distressful social situation. This consists of rubbing the hands, feet, tail, and or chest with urine. I guess that's one way to get someone to leave you alone. It marks its scent by rubbing its throat on branches. Lip smacking and tongue movements are signals used by females as an invitation to mate. And genital displays are used to indicate various emotional states. Oh sure, but when I do that, it's all, sir, we're going to have to ask you to leave the Arby's. And on that note, my friends, we'll say goodbye to Costa Rica, at least for now. Thank you for listening. Please hit those like and follow or subscribe buttons, whatever you got. It's free and it can potentially help me out a lot. If you want to support future episodes of the podcast, there's several ways you can do that. Check out the Dispatches from the Forest merch store at cafepress.com forward slash dispatches from the forest and get some dispatches merchandise. There's t-shirts, water bottles, hoodies, and much, much more. Check out our Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. You can do that at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatches from the forest at gmail.com is my PayPal address and how you can contact me if you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion for a future episode. For additional content, follow Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and soon YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.